Good morning. Today's reading is Matthew 19, 3 through 12. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better to not marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. The word of the Lord. We are in a sermon series in which we're discussing topics that have two big things in common. First, they're contested in our culture. And second, they involve our embodiedness as human beings. This week and next week, we're discussing transgender identities. Um, this is a very challenging conversation, and I want to begin by emphasizing the same thing we said last week, that we're not just talking about a topic, we're talking about people. People with names and stories, hopes and dreams, and all too often, unbelievable hurts and pains, especially at the hands of the church. Uh, trans people are some of the most marginalized, oppressed, and vulnerable people in our society According to one study, 57% uh, have family members that won't talk to them. 50% have experienced harassment at school. 65% have suffered physical or sexual violence. And 69% have experienced homelessness. Trans people experience higher levels of anxiety, depression, and other mental health challenges. And on top of that, suicidality is extremely high among trans people. So this is a challenging conversation. One of the other big challenges about this is that even though trans people have existed for centuries, in our country, over the it's only over the last few decades that this has really become a national conversation, which means there's still just a lot we don't know. So we need to be really humble and careful. Um, an even bigger challenge is that um, it's just the radioactive nature of this conversation. You know, I'm an old Gen Xer, and in all my decades on this planet, I have never seen any conversation generate so much um, division, bitterness, hatred, and fear as this conversation. 
It seems like everybody's talking about it, but nobody wants to talk about it. Do you want to talk about it online? <laughs> I'd rather not talk about it, but we need to talk about it, again, because these are people. And that actually leads to one of the most important questions uh, for us as we enter into this conversation. What does it mean to be a human being? How would you answer this question? Your answer is what's called your anthropology. Anthropos is the Greek word for human. Even if you've never thought about this, you have an anthropology because we all have beliefs about what it means to be a human being. This is one of the big reasons we have been going so slow through this series. Do you remember in the first week, we talked about how we all have faith assumptions. In other words, especially in our culture, we tend to believe in things like the personal dignity of every individual and injustice, especially for the oppressed. But why? If human beings are just a bag of chemicals, what basis do we have for those beliefs? In week two, we talked about the body. The Bible says that we are not just bodies only. Neither are we eternal souls with only a temporary body. The Bible says we are embodied souls. And we can't tear those things apart without doing incredible damage to ourselves. In week number three, we talked about identity. We use this word all the time, but what do we mean by it? Is our identity something that's based on an essential design? Or is it something that we construct on the basis of our internal desires? The Bible says, yes. In other words, we are designed desirers. We are individuals, unique individuals created in the image of God um, with a call to steward our internal desires in light of our design. So we need to keep all of these things in mind our anthropology as we enter into this conversation. Now, full disclosure, I am approaching this conversation as a Christian minister. But even though there's diversity outside of Christianity on this experience, even within Christianity, there is a diverse viewpoint, number of viewpoints about uh, the transgender experience. And I want to pay attention to that diversity. So as we do um, enter into the conversation, let's ask three questions. What is this about? What does Jesus say? And what do we do with it? What is this conversation about? What does Jesus say? And what do we do with it? Okay. First, what's this conversation about? Um, remember last week we said that we all have a frame. Um, one of the biggest challenges in this conversation is that there are so many frames. And I want to interact with some of them. But first, we need to um, gain a basic understanding of a few key terms just to enter into this conversation. So I'm going to kind of go through some information, um, but I hope it's helpful. I think it's important. First, biological sex is talking about the physical, biological, and anatomic dimensions of being male and female. Second, gender describes the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male and female. Now, in our culture, um, sex and gender used to be synonyms. But um, over the last several decades, again, uh, we have um, distinguished those things to, to talk about different aspects of human experience. But even so, many times people um, 
merge these two concepts or um, use them in confusing ways. It can just be very confusing sometimes. But for the sake of our conversation, I want to do my best to, to maintain that distinction between sex and gender. Third, gender role is a way of describing the social expectations for how male and females are supposed to act within a given culture. Different cultures have different expectations, and even within a culture, gender role, the social expectations can change. Like, you know, in our culture, pink is for girls and blue is for boys. Duh. But did you know that 100 years ago, it was the exact opposite? Social um, expectations, gender roles change. Now, moving on, gender identity is a way of referring to one's internal sense of self as male, female, both, or neither. And lastly, uh, transgender, not lastly, (laughs) we have one more after this. Transgender is an umbrella term for the different ways people experience and express their gender identity when it doesn't match their biological sex. Um, By the way, There are transgender people who do identify within the male-female binary, but there are many other people who don't identify within the binary. They might identify as genderqueer, genderfluid, or some other non-binary identity, but transgender is an umbrella term for um, the, the variety of experiences within here. You'll often see it just shortened to trans with an asterisk to indicate um, this experience or multiplicity of experiences. And finally, uh, gender dysphoria describes the distress that some people, not all people, but some people feel when their internal sense of self doesn't match their biological sex. Now, not all people who identify as transgender experience gender dysphoria, and not all people who experience gender dysphoria identify as transgender. But gender dysphoria is a real phenomenon and it can be anywhere from mild to severe. For instance, Andrea Long Chu is a transgender woman who described it like this. She said, dysphoria feels like being unable to get warm no matter how many layers you put on. It feels like hunger without appetite. It feels like grieving. It feels like having nothing to grieve. It's a really powerful description. Now, the question arises, what causes the transgender experience? Uh, There are many theories. Some people propose a biological cause. Others propose a psychological cause. Still others propose sociological explanations. Um, There are many other theories. Um, But ultimately, we don't really know what causes it, which is huge because if we don't know what causes it, how can we support and care for people who experience it? Um, I actually think that Preston Sprinkle, and I've talked about his books here before and I recommend them to you, Preston Sprinkle has a great question that helps us think, think through this conversation. Remember we were just talking about how we all have an anthropology and that um, our anthropology is going to shape the way we understand the trans experience? Uh, Preston Sprinkle has a great question that helps us think about our anthropology as we um, talk about this experience. Here's the question. If someone experiences incongruence or a mismatch between their biological sex and their internal sense of self, then which one determines who they are and why? In other words, we may not know what causes gender incongruence, but our anthropology 
can help guide us through the question as we seek to care for people who experience it. And that's, I mean, really, this whole series has been all about what is a biblical anthropology or a biblical frame for what it means to be a human being. And there are other frames about this. For instance, in Western culture, uh, by far the frame that dominates head and shoulders above every other frame is what we could call the authenticity frame. There's a writer named Jonathan Grant who describes it like this. Modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality, the only rule being that they must resonate with who we feel we really are. The worst thing we can do is to conform to some moral code that is imposed on us from outside by society, our parents, the church, or whoever else. It is deemed to be self-evident that any such imposition would undermine our unique identity. Now, this is a powerful frame, and I think it's impossible to deny the impact this frame has on the trans conversation. However, I think it would be a big mistake to, um, to, to look at authenticity and just reject it and say, well, that's the culture, the culture is bad, and therefore we need to reject it. I think that's a mistake, and for two big reasons. First, as we mentioned, trans people have existed for centuries. So we can't just say this is only happening because of our culture's emphasis on authenticity. Second, maybe even more importantly, our culture's emphasis on authenticity, that is, your internal sense of who you are, your internal sense of self, that actually comes to us from Christianity and Christianity's influence in our world. That means that, that our emphasis, the way we honor our internal sense of self, our individual sense of self, is a Christian category. But here's the thing. It's, it's, there's a difference between honoring our internal sense of self and enthroning it. And in our culture, we do enthrone it. In our culture, it's almost impossible to resist the pull of this cultural frame that says, whatever you feel about yourself on the inside, that's who you really are. So we need to acknowledge that as we move through this conversation. In fact, there's a really, um, one of the best recent pictures of the authenticity frame that I've seen recently is from the movie Every, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Uh, if you've seen the movie, you know it's about a Chinese immigrant family. And they're not just living in a meaningless universe. The, the setting for the movie is a meaningless multiverse. In fact, several times throughout the film, different characters will say, nothing matters. In a meaningless multiverse, nothing matters. But the husband, Waymond, goes on to say, the only thing I do know is that we need to be kind. Please, be kind. And so at the end of the film, there's this big battle scene where his wife, Evelyn, is fighting a bunch of meanies. And uh, Waymond tells her, fight them with kindness. And so she does. And what happens is that instead of physically crushing her opponents, what she does is her kindness liberates them into their authentic self, into their deepest desires. So for instance, uh, she helps one guy crack his back. Or she maneuvers two other people into a kiss. Uh, she even helps one person uh, re-engage some sexual fantasies. 
But in, in a meaningless world, the message of this film is that kindness means liberating other people into their deepest desires to be their authentic self. Because at the end of the day, who you feel yourself to be on the inside, that's who you really are. Friends, again, this is a powerful frame, not just in the Western world, but throughout all of the world. And we need to pay attention to this. Again, I think it's important that we um, acknowledge the, um, the, the pull here, but that we also don't um, demonize authenticity and, and just reject it because it's the culture's frame and the culture is bad. No, we need to recognize this comes to us from Christianity. And yet, instead of honoring the individual, we enthrone the individual. Now, all of that said that none of that invalidates the transgender experience. In fact, we need to um, take a deeper look at this because all of this uh, involves questions of our anthropology and what it means to be a human being. So with all of that said, let's move on to our second point. We just asked, what is this about? But secondly, what does Jesus say? You know, there is no passage in the Bible that directly addresses the transgender experience. However, many scholars do look at Matthew 19 uh, and pay attention to what Jesus says here. The story is um, some religious leaders come and ask Jesus about divorce. And Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Now, um, Jesus is quoting Genesis 1 and 2, which talks about how God created human beings in the image of God, male and female. So on the surface, it would appear that Jesus is affirming um, the male-female sex binary as being normative for human experience. Um, however, Christians with a high view of scripture, a high view of scripture that you believe all of the Bible is, is God's word. High view of scripture. Christians with a high view of scripture um, come to different conclusions about what Matthew 19 is saying. is a highly regarded uh, scholar of gender and sexuality. Three lenses or frames for how Christians see the transgender experience. And we're going to introduce them to you now. First, the integrity frame tends to respect, to integrity or sacredness of sex differences established by God at creation. Uh, in this is a moral concern. Secondly, the disability frame, and by the way, language we use when we talk about this experience. Um, words like disability or disorder um, brokenness or fallenness or things like to people. Um, so we need to be super careful about how we use language. Nonetheless, Mark Yarhouse defines the disability frame like this. 
at variations that occur in nature. Gender incongruity, remember that's the mismatch between biological self, sex, and your internal unnormative, non-moral reality the effects of the fall on creation, including sex and gender. Lastly, uh, the diversity frame. This frame variations of gender experiences that should be neither condemned nor each one of these three frames takes scripture seriously but they come to different conclusions that so what do we do with that now, for instance the identity uh, integrity frame and the disability frame both tend to see the male-female sex binary as being normative for our human experience. And for the last 1960 years, that has been the historic Christian interpretation of passages like Genesis 1 and 2 and Matthew 19. However, over the last 50 years or so, there are an increasing number of uh, Christian scholars who come to different conclusions about Matthew 19. For instance, um, Megan DeFranza is a Christian counselor and writer who uh, acknowledges that when you look at Genesis 1, of course you see binaries like light and darkness. But she goes on to point out very correctly that Genesis 1 does not list other forms regularly seen in creation like rivers, amphibians dusk or dawn, few would argue that these hybrids are a result of the fall or that they stray from God's creational intent. It's a good point, right? I mean, just because Genesis 1 doesn't talk about frogs, people, doesn't mean that they are not and worthy to be celebrated do you feel the force of this? Megan DeFranza and many within the diversity frame, they go on to pay a lot of attention to 19. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Now, eunuch uh, is very possibly referring to people who were born with either missing or ambiguous genitalia. In fact, it's very likely, according to a lot of the scholars, that Jesus is probably intersex people or uh, DSD, which is uh, um, anywhere between 0.022% to 1.7% of the population is born with um, reproductive organs, uh, anatomic sex, or any combination of 16 different conditions um, that qualify as DSD. But Megan DeFranza goes on to point out that look at what Jesus says results of the fall. Instead, Jesus holds them up as shining examples 
of living for the kingdom of God. And in fact, many other Christian scholars within the diversity frame agree with Megan de Franz. God intersects people here. He's implicitly experienced that we see in creation and the goodness of a Now, here's the thing. They Biblical scholarship hasn't been looking at this for more than, again, a few decades. So I'm new to this conversation too, and, and, and I'm continuing to study this, and I want to be open and cautious. That said, um, I don't find the arguments here compelling for at least a few reasons. And the first one is this. In the ancient world, uh, eunuchs were still recognized as being biologically male. Remember we said we want to maintain that distinction between biological sex and gender identity, which is your internal sense of self. In this passage, Jesus is not talking about their internal sense of self or their gender identity. He's talking about their physical body. Second, the larger context of this conversation is that the disciples' question about marriage and divorce. They're saying, hey, Jesus, if marriage is so serious, then maybe it's better not to get married at all. And Jesus is saying, that's right. In fact, many people might choose to forsake marriage and children. In other words, to live like a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus isn't directly talking about gender identity or our internal sense of self. He's celibacy in this passage. A, a third reason is this. Um, again, many people um, look at the presence of intersex people and, and they connect that to uh, the transgender experience. But remember we said we want to maintain that distinction between biological sex and gender identity. Um, Oftentimes, people will look at intersex and say, because of the presence of intersex people, or DSD, uh, that means that, that, that we can affirm a whole diversity of transgender experiences. They'll, people will often merge these two categories together and say that the presence of one um, affirms the, the presence and the goodness of the other. Now listen, many trans people, in my understanding at least, find great comfort And yet, um, I also want to caution us to be too careful, too quick uh, to make a, a, a jump from DSD to the transgender experience. For instance, um, Accord Alliance is a, an organization that is devoted to the support and care of people and their families who are affected by DSD. And on their website, there's an FAQ. And one of the questions is this. Does having DSD make someone transgender? You know how they answer? No. Transgender means a person feels the gender assigned at birth was not the right one. DSD is about atypical development of a person's body, not about how a person feels about herself or himself. And they go on to say that most people with DSD are not transgender, and most transgender people have no identifiable DSD. Now, friends, again, none of this, none of this invalidates the experience of transgender people. 
And yet I do want to caution us to be too quick to, to make an immediate connection between DSD or intersex and the transgender experience. They're two different things. Uh, but at the end of the day, as best as I can see, uh, at least this is where I'm at right now. I, I, you know, I want to tell you that I still find no compelling reason to doubt that Jesus is affirming the male-female sex binary as, as, having, as being normative for human experience. And when I say that, listen, I realize more than anybody that how in our cultural frame, many people feel that's a transphobic thing to say. And that actually leads to our last point. We've asked, what is this conversation about? We've just asked, what does Jesus say? But lastly, what do we do with all of this? You know, our culture's frame would say, it would answer Preston Sprinkle's question and say that your internal sense of self, that's what determines who you are. And listen, if there is no God and there is no world outside of this world, then I think that frame makes sense. But in a biblical frame, um, we are not just bodies only, which is what a secular, a purely secular frame would say. Neither are we eternal souls with only a temporary body, which is what um, uh, many religious or spiritual but not religious frames would say, instead, the biblical frame says that we are embodied souls. In other words, we are unique individuals created in the image of God with a call to steward our desires in light of our design, that we are um, both have an internal sense of self and uh, a body, and that we need to hold both of those two things together. So and it is precisely because uh, the Bible has such a high view of the body and precisely because Jesus affirms the goodness of uh, being created in the image of God, male and female, it is precisely because of that that I would say that what determines who we really are is our, our body. And, and I realize that's a really strange, crazy, um, offensive thing to say in our culture. And yet, that's where I'm at right now. Um, our body determines who we are. And yet, here's the thing. The gospel is actually even more amazing and more countercultural than that because our bodies don't just show us who we are. Our bodies show us whose we are. Remember, um, Jesus says that we're created in the image of God, male and female. In other words, your body is a sacred site. Your body is a thin place which is what Irish people call one of those places where spiritual and physical reality come so close that they overlap. Your body is a thin place. And, and when Jesus talks about the one fleshness, uh, the coming together of male and female, it's a sign that's pointing to an even greater reality, a bigger reality that is our ultimate union, our spousal union with God. Our, our bodies are a sign of that. This is actually a very ancient but forgotten way of seeing the world. It's a way of seeing the world that says, for instance, when you look at a lion, you're right to see royalty there because it's a sign that's pointing to a, the true king who sits on the throne of the universe. Or when a man and a woman close the doors to make love, you are right to see something sacred and intimate there because those closed doors are a sign of the sacred intimacy that's woven into the heart of all things. The, the, this ancient way of seeing the world says everything means everything. But our modern way of seeing the world 
disenchants and deconstructs that and says nothing means anything. As the movie said, nothing matters. And if that's the case, then physical matter, including your body, is just a tool. It's just a piece of flesh that you're free to use however you think. It has no inherent meaning. In that frame, to say that somebody's sex is assigned at birth, that makes perfect sense because in that frame, both your internal sense of self and your biological sex, none of that has any meaning. It means that human sex is an arbitrary category assigned by human beings. But but the ancient biblical frame, ancient biblical way of seeing the world says everything means everything. It says that your body um, has a significance and a meaning and a reality that points beyond itself to the God who created us for himself. Or we could say it like this. Your sex is not assigned by humans. Your sex is a sign of God. There's a wonderful place in the Chronicles of Narnia where two children, a prince named Rillian and a marsh wiggle named Puddleglum, uh, get trapped in an underground world uh, by an evil witch who wants to enslave them. And while they're there, they're tied up and they keep talking about uh, Narnia, this overworld they come from. And the witch wants to disenchant them of this foolishness. And so she says, overworld? <laughs> Tell me about this overworld of yours. And Prince Rillian says, well, look at this lamp. It's round, it's yellow, and it gives light. In our world, the sun is like this lamp, only bigger. Or, do you like cats? Um, in our world, Aslan is like this cat, only he's much bigger, and he's the king of everything. And the witch laughs at him and says, don't you see what you're doing? You see a lamp, and so you imagine a bigger lamp, and you call it a sun. You see a cat, and you imagine a bigger cat, and you call him your king. You can put nothing in this make-believe world of yours without copying it from my world, which is the only real world. There is no Narnia, no overworld, no sky, no sun. And he hears that, Puddleglum, the marsh wiggle, gets really mad. And he says, okay, suppose that we just made up all of these things. Even if that's the case, all the stuff that we've made up seems a good deal more important than this black pit of a kingdom of yours. According to you, we're just babies playing a game. But four babies playing a game can make up a play world that beats your real world hollow. And if that's the case, then I am going to live as much like a Narnian as I can, even if Narnia doesn't exist. Friends, this world may be the only world that exists. There may be no overworld. But, and if that's the case, then what we do with our body literally doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But the gospel says there is a world beyond this world. And there is a king, a real king, sitting on the throne of heaven. And everything in creation, including our bodies, is whispering his name, telling his story, and singing his love. And this king, Jesus, is the only king who entered the story of his creation, became a human being, took a physical body, 
and was crucified on the cross and physically rose from the dead in order to redeem and restore not just our physical bodies, but also our internal sense of self. To redeem and restore all of that, there is nothing more affirming for both your internal sense of self and your body than the crucified body and physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, then what we do with our body matters tremendously. Preston Sprinkle puts it like this. Part of discipleship is learning to embrace our bodies as important aspects of our identity, learning to see them as gifts from God and part of how we bear his image in the world. Discipleship involves embracing our bodies and seeing them as gifts. Friends, we need to acknowledge the reality that for many, many of our trans friends, their bodies are not experienced as a gift, but often as an unbearable burden. We need to be so sensitive to that. And so next week, when we come back, are you coming back next week? <laughs> we want to continue um, exploring all of the questions that this raises for us. Questions like, well, if somebody does experience incongruity between their internal sense of self and their biological sex, how can we best support and care for them? Or, and if that describes your experience at all, how should you respond, whether you're a Christian or not? And what about all the other questions that we fight about, like pronouns and bathrooms? What about all these questions? Come back next week. We're going to keep talking about this. But friends, these questions matter because our body matters your internal sense of self matters, and our lived experience to be. And oftentimes, our trans friends experience that not the way it's supposed to be in us at a much deeper level than we do. So let's keep showing up for one another as we learn better how to love one another, okay? Would you pray with me? Abba, we praise you this morning. Uh, that your creation is good. We love your creation. We thank you for your creation. And we thank you for our created being, Lord, that we are not just bodies nor just souls. We are embodied souls. Help us to hold both of those things together. And Father, I pray especially that you will help all of us to be humble, cautious, careful, wise, charitable, and generous as we wrestle with these questions. Lord, uh, save us from the arrogance that um, makes us too sure too quickly of what we believe is true. Help us to, to take your word seriously and to listen well to others who have different perspectives. But I pray at the end of the day, Lord, that you will help all of us um, to see the truth of what you're showing us in your word. And even more, Lord, to see the truth as, as you uh, reveal it to us in creation, including our bodies. Father, I pray that you would bring the redemption of Jesus more truly and fully into all of our lives, redeeming our internal sense of self and our bodies, all for the sake of Jesus, for we pray it all in his name. Amen.